Please turn with your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5 for our study this evening, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's pray together. Father, it's awesome to hear 17,000 unreached people groups and now 6,000 unreached people groups. Father, we just pray for the lost and we specifically pray for the Muslim world. Lord, we ask that you'd open up their eyes and their ears uh, to the hope that's in Jesus Christ. Pray you'd bless this 30 days of prayer and Lord, you'd raise up uh, laborers for the harvest. God, as we open up your word tonight, uh, we expect that to you, for you to speak because of who you are. You're the God of communication. Your word doesn't come back void. And we come with expectation and faith and trust that you're going to speak to us tonight. But we pray that you would deal with the areas of failure in our church, in our lives, that we wouldn't just uh, sweep it under the rug, but we would allow your spirit to do what is necessary for your glory. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Failure comes in all different shapes and sizes. Sometimes people's failure is much more evident and obvious than others. On June 1st, there was a man that was driving a huge crane in New York, and he dropped an air conditioning unit 28 stories. You can imagine, 28 stories. Here comes this air conditioning unit, and Bam, it landed on a couple. They were 49 and 51 years old. It landed on their car as they were driving. And thankfully, they were okay. They lived. They were pinned into their car and pulled out of that. But could you imagine? They just dropped their daughter off at work. It was a Sunday morning, 49, 51, and bam, all of a sudden, this guy's failure driving the crane is front page of the newspaper. I've always thought driving a crane would be rather difficult. It's probably good for everybody's safety that I did not go into that field. Sometimes when you're in downtown Denver and you're just watching all of these, these cranes, it's, it's quite a skill. And so here's this guy's failure is there for, for the world. And the Church of Corinth, their failure is there for all of eternity. God records it in great detail for us to learn from. And all of our lives have sin and failure as well. And it's important that we allow God to deal with the sin in our lives. You think about a surgery that's being done for cancer. No one would just volunteer to go have that surgery done for fun or because they feel like it, but they realize it's life or death. And some of you have been through that or have had family members go through that and I've got to get this procedure done. I've got to have this surgery done. And the surgeons, the doctors, they're, they're exacting. We've got to get all of this cancer out. We've got to go back and, and get this. Is anybody going to just sign up for chemo and say, yeah, that sounds like a good thing to do with my summer for 2015. But it's necessary, right? It's painful, but it's necessary. And what God wants to do the same thing in, in our lives as well. The Holy Spirit will begin to illuminate these struggles in our lives. We say, okay, God, you're the great physician, so dig deep. Go for it. Do your work in my heart and in my life. And Paul, because he's a loving pastor, he's a, a loving brother in Christ, and he loves this church, he can't simply allow it to function the way that it is. His whole purpose in writing this letter is to try to get a church that's out of order back into order. A church that's acting ungodly, 
to become godly because there's a real cancer that, that's taking place. We're going to hopefully look at two chapters tonight, and the failure that's going to be addressed is the failure for the church to disciplining a sinning brother. They've got a brother who's blatantly in sin, and they're unwilling to discipline him in a godly manner. Also, there's a failure to resolve personal conflict. People are suing each other inside of the church, and they're taking their matters before unrighteous judges instead of the church of God being used to solve and bring peace in these situations. And then they're failing to live in sexual purity before the Lord. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. What's the church's report card? What's their spiritual report card? What's getting reported? What's the news that's happening in the church? You hope for things like, oh, people are coming to Christ. The word of God is being taught and lived. God's changing and transforming marriages. But instead, what is the news of the church of Corinth is there's a lot of sexual immorality there inside of the church. We're not talking about in the community. We know that in the community there was a lot of sexual immorality but inside of the church. And we'll find that it's undealt with. And the guy, he has his father's wife, his stepmother. That's who he's in sexual relationship with. Now that's pretty twisted, isn't it? That's pretty messed up to, to think about that kind of sexual perversion. And Paul says, there isn't even this kind of sexual perversion among people that don't, don't know the Lord. And unfortunately, that's the case sometimes amongst the people of God. We know from Paul writing to 1 Thessalonians, the church there of Thessalonica, says it's the will of God, your sexual purity, that you would understand how to walk in sanctification before the Lord. It's to be what sets us apart as believers, the decisions that we make with our bodies to say, I want to glorify God with my body, and so I'm going to live inside of God's instruction and God's guidelines for sexual purity. But instead, the church was known for leading the way in, in sexual immorality. And I would pray that God would do a work in our hearts tonight. If there's this challenge that comes from the Lord in this area of, of sexual purity, that God would work this deep into our hearts and our lives. This has taken place, but now notice the church's attitude towards sexual sin in verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So you would think that the church leadership, the body of Christ, would respond with something like, oh, we love you. We're so grieved that you're walking in this sin, that there's no repentance in your life, but instead they were puffed up in this kind of manner of saying, wow, we love this individual and we're very proud of the fact that we accept his sexual sin. And we're going to have now an environment where we're going to accept sexual sin instead of holding people to God's standard of what he says for sexuality. And what Paul is saying is you had the wrong response to sexual sin. You had the wrong response to sexual immorality. Whenever this comes up now in scripture, I think we have to define what sexual purity is. We have to define what sexual immorality is because the world has completely blurred the lines. So God created man and woman, male and female. 
and sex to be enjoyed inside of the commitment of marriage. And anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And so God's heart is that the church would then stand behind God's definition, his command, and his instruction of marriage. Now, does verse 2 at all sound familiar of what is happening in some churches in America today? Are some churches in America today what has become their flagship, what's become their report card, what's filled their Facebook and their Twitter feed is this, that we embrace homosexuality, that we embrace sexual sin, that it's no longer important to God because God's a God of love, and because he's a God of love, then he accepts anyone's sexual orientation. So if your sexual orientation is to sleep around with a bunch of women, go for it. Ladies, if your sexual orientation is to sleep around with a bunch of guys, go for it. If your orientation is to, to be man with man, woman with woman, go for it. And there's this sense of pride that comes with it of saying, we're so loving, we're so accepting. But God doesn't call it sexual orientation. He calls it sin. If we're hardwired with this sexual orientation where we don't have a choice to choose right or wrong, then why would God pronounce judgment on it? If this is just the way this guy's made to sleep around with his stepmom, then, then why does God come in and say, here's a, a definition for, for purity? And I say this because once the lines get blurred, once the lines get confused, where are we going to stand on it? I mean, once you embrace one type of sexual sin, how do you sit down with a teenager, a 16-year-old, your son or your daughter, and say, this is God's heart for sexual purity? You can't. The church has lost its voice on sexual purity once we've compromised it. And so Paul enters the discussion and says, all right, guys, this is how you should respond to this sexual sin that's in your midst. And he says, this person should be taken away from you. And I want to really define this scripturally and biblically so that you're not misunderstood. It seems like over the years, I've gotten misunderstood on this. Like, People have only heard one little soundbite of, of what I've said, and they haven't heard like the 40-minute message, and then I lead up to the last five minutes and call people to apply God's word to their lives. This isn't somebody who's struggling with sexual sin and comes into the church, which we should do when we're struggling with sin, saying, I'm feeling really convicted. I'm blowing it in this area. That's completely different than this guy. This guy is proud of his sin, He's reporting it everywhere he goes, and he wants the church to accept it and be okay with it. And there's a big difference between struggling and willful rebellion. And this is a process before what happens in verse 2, before there's biblical discipline that happens in, in a church community. First, it starts with a confrontation one-on-one, -on -one, where a brother or sister in Christ is in this willful type of rebellion, and another brother, sister in Christ comes to him and says, you know what, I love you, and what you're doing, it's harming you, it's destroying you, it doesn't glorify God. Would you please repent and not walk in this sexual sin anymore? Don't, don't continue in this. The person blows it off. They say, you know what, God's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. You know, this is just the way that I am, and he, he accepts me for, for the way that I am. Now, I'm going to continue in this. Now, I'm going to continue in adultery. I'm going to continue in 
sex outside of marriage, then, then what do you do? And you, we should be equipped for this. You should be equipped to have that kind of conversation with our brother or sister in Christ that, that goes to RMC. Then the scripture says to take two or three with you. So you grab two brothers and sisters in Christ, and now it's an extra level of accountability, and you have the same conversation. By the way, when we're having these conversations, we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, considering ourselves, lest we fall into sin, realizing we're all sinners. There's going to be times where we all will need to be called on sin, failure that needs to be dealt with, giving the opportunity to for the person to respond with a small group, they don't respond, then you bring it to the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, and then the elders of the church talk it through with that person, and if there's still not repentance, then what we'll see as we read the rest of this chapter is that person is to then be asked to leave fellowship, leave the, the communion table, that God doesn't want them to continually walking in willful rebellion and enjoy fellowship and enjoy communion and the, the things of, of the word of God. And we'll see the reasons why in these next few verses. In verse three, for I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Paul says, I don't even need to come and have a long explanation of this. It's so well reported. There's no misunderstanding here. This guy's clearly doing it. Notice there's no mention of the woman, so it's probably that the stepmom is an unbeliever. She's not in the church, and as we'll find, believers have a higher standard, so he's dealing with the believer in this particular situation. And Paul says, I'm ready to pronounce judgment on this, and you may be going, I thought Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged, and now Paul's saying that he's judging this, when you look into the Greek, it unlocks it for us. Jesus is talking about pronouncing condemnation on someone. I'm deciding that you're going to hell. That's not our place, and that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is holding someone accountable. He's making a call. It's identification. It's not condemnation. It's identification, and the scripture does tell us you'll know them by their fruit, in order to walk through this process that I just described of Matthew 18, someone has to make a call, and that's what Paul's doing. He's not pronouncing that this, there's no hope for this person, but he is making a call on their sexual sin. Does that make sense? In verse 4, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with the Spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. By not implementing the church discipline, by failing to implement the church discipline, they're preventing the consequences in this man's life that could actually bring him back to Christ. Remember our studies in Hebrews, it says love disciplines. A father disciplines the child he loves. The father disciplines us. So a loving church is not going to be puffed up with acceptance and saying we're accepting sin, but a loving church is going to say, you know what? We understand true biblical love, which means to hold one another accountable. So this guy was to be put out of the fellowship so that his flesh could be destroyed, so that he could get to the end of himself, and that he would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the prodigal? He wanted his inheritance, and he wanted to leave, and the father said, okay, if you want to go, you can go. 
And it wasn't until he came to the end of himself, it wasn't until he got to the point where he experienced his consequences that he realized how good he had it in the Father's house. In verse 6, your glorying is not good. Your so-called acceptance is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Any bakers, any proud bakers out there? It's like, yeah, I like to bake and I'm, I'm pretty good at it. What happens with your yeast as you're making bread, as you're, as you're baking, the leaven? It permeates the whole lump. Church, sin does not just affect you. It affects the community, the body of believers that you're linked with. You see this in your own biological family. You know, sin of someone else in the family, it affects the whole family. And Paul's saying, don't you know if you, you don't deal with the sexual sin that's widely known in, in your midst? It's going to permeate the whole loaf. It's going to set the whole spiritual tone and the whole spiritual atmosphere that is, that is taking place. In verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. For the Jews, in thinking back to the Old Testament, they would understand the illustration here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leading up to Passover. We go through their house, make sure that there was no yeast. It was a spiritual illustration to make sure that there was no sin and rebellion in your life before God. We're God's house, and a little bit of sin affects the, the whole house. And so the illustration here is purge out the old leaven. You're made new. You're new in Christ Jesus For Christ is our Passover. He's the Passover lamb, and he was sacrificed for us. Why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Because Christ sacrificed for us. Why did Christ die upon the cross for us? To free us from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. God desires holiness for our lives because he knows what's best for us. God's design for sexuality, it leads to abundant life. He's the creator. He's the designer. And it's the sacrifice of Christ that elevates this to such an important place in our lives. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. So that's something that Paul had put out to the church of Corinth, and they came away with the wrong understanding. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. So when we hear this, don't keep company with somebody who is sexually immoral, and we start thinking, well, I I can't be around unbelievers. And there's other things that are listed there as well, covetous, extortioners, idolaters. And Paul's saying, no, I wasn't talking about unbelievers I was talking about someone who is a believer, a proclaimed brother or sister in Christ, but yet they're walking in willful rebellion when it comes to sexual immorality in their lives. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He spent time with broken people because he's the great physician. And that's to be our model as well. People that don't know Christ, we should understand that they're gonna sin because they're sinners and they need a savior. And the antidote is Jesus Christ. The remedy is Jesus Christ. And we point them to what Christ has done for them, the death and resurrection. And Jesus changes them from the inside out. But there's a higher standard that's given to somebody who is a believer, a believer in Christ. 
But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. There's some ouch verses in the Bible, and that's an ouch verse. It's just ouch. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Man, is that, is that loving? Is that the right thing to do? Is that how they were to respond to this guy who's in sexual sin and he's so proud of it and come into the church and expecting that the church would rally around his relationship that, that he's in? But what's the heart behind a verse 11? The heart behind it is saying, we want you to understand how much God loves you and the plan that he has for you and so for this time, there's going to be a break in fellowship so that you can come to the place of repentance in your life. Please remember the difference between a struggle and unrepentant sin and willful rebellion in someone's life. In verse 12, for what, for what I have to do with judging those who are outside, Paul's not worried about holding the world to a standard. Do not... Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Deal with the church community and let the Lord take, of the, take care of the world's iniquity. God's dealing with the hearts of, of unbelievers. That's not our place. Our place is to go out into the world and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Introduce them to Jesus Christ. Let them know that they're sinners and they need a savior and to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. But it's not judgment upon the world. It's judgment inside of, of the, the church of God. This leads into chapter six and some more topics are gonna be addressed in line with this. But to just open my heart with you a little bit, this is the hardest thing that we have to do as pastors. This absolutely breaks my heart. I'm not uh, wired to be this intense disciplinarian. Sometimes I wish that I was. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they were contemporaries and both dealing with sin inside of God's people. Nehemiah, he had that godly indignation and he ripped out their beards when they were in sexual sin. It's like, knock it off, and ripped out their beards. And there is that godly response to sin. It's, it's intense and it needs to be dealt with. Ezra was presented with the same situation and he ripped out his own beard. And he, was, he was broken and he, so he ripped out his own beard. And I'm wired more like Ezra than probably Nehemiah. And it breaks my heart. And every time that I've had to do it, it's with tears in my eyes. To sit down with someone that I love and that I care for that's connected to this church family Say, look, we've walked through this process. This hasn't happened overnight. We've let you know what's coming. Are you sure that this is what you want to do? Yep, I'm sure this is what I'm going to do. So you're telling me that your relationship with this woman, this man, is more important than your relationship with Christ. Well, I can't answer that. Well, by not answering that, you answered that. So in love for you and love for this body, I, I've got to hold you accountable to this. If you're not going to repent from, from this sin, you can't be here. And as soon as you're at that place 
where you were repentant, we would love for, for you to be here. And that's the one little soundbite that people hear. People say, well, Eric doesn't want people that are in sexual sin at church. That's not what I said. You weren't listening. You weren't listening. I'm talking about someone who claims to be a believer and they've been warned and they've been challenged and they're unwilling to repent. In that case, yes, but once there's repentance, we're gonna be the first ones to rally around. Once there's that phone call, it says, man, I can't believe that I've been doing this. This is destroying God's heart and it's destroying the hearts of others. We rally around that, that place. But I'm thankful that the pastoral staff here at this church is one that we're willing to walk this through and we have at different points in time because I think it's a really important part of a strong biblical community and no one's exempt from it. You know, if any of the pastors of the church, including myself, you know, if it's like, hey, you know what, I just, I just decided adultery, it's okay, and, you know, I'm just going to keep my relationship with Amber and do adultery and be your pastor, and isn't God accepting, you know? One, Amber would never live with that, <laughs> you know, but two, you should never live with that either. You should never swallow that pill and go, no, Eric, you taught me the word, and you're accountable to the word. You have an option here. You can repent. Get out of adultery, get right with the Lord, get right with your family, you can be here. But if you're wanting to walk in unrepentant sin, then guess what? You can't be here. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a hard thing to do, but it's an important thing to do. Another area in chapter six where the church is failing is with these personal conflicts that are unresolved. They get so big that they have to go before a judge. Dare any of you have a matter against another Go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. That's pretty strong language. Dare any of you. Don't take this before a judge. Take it before the saints. What happens when it's taken before a judge that doesn't know the Lord? We'll, we'll see in the next few verses. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you not unworthy to judge the smallest matters? What's your concept of eternity with God? Is it chubby angels with a harp forever? Like, who wants to go there? Or is it this amazing adventure where you're given responsibility by God? Yeah, that's what the scripture teaches. There's a thousand years where Christ is gonna rule and reign and God tells us in the book of Revelation that we're gonna rule and reign with Christ. Revelation 20 verse six, blessed and holy is he who has been part of the first resurrection over the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Part of this is you're gonna make judgments over the angels. And so be in this place of ruling and reigning with Christ, how do we not judge the smallest things? In verse three, do not know that we will judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? That's pretty clear, isn't it? The person in the church is more qualified to deal with this than who, someone who is outside. And we need to be concerned about the testimony 
that we're bringing before this judge that doesn't know the Lord. Our unity is to be a testimony to the unbelievers. So let's play this out a little bit. Got a brother or sister in Christ. Let's just say it's a real estate deal. I hear real estate's getting a little more hot and things are going quickly. And it's with another brother or sister in Christ. And all of a sudden, there becomes a big disagreement. Let's make it even a little bit more personal. It's right inside of Rocky Mountain Calvary. You both go to Rocky Mountain Calvary. And I don't know what the disagreement's over, but there's a lot of things you can disagree about in a real estate transaction, right? So it gets hot, and it gets heavy, and then it gets to calling names, and you know, you're a big baboon, and well, you know, you're, you're a sissy, and well, you're a baboon, and uh, you're a sissy. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, well, I'm going to sue you. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue you first. And the Lord bless you. You know, just throw that in there at the end. I'm praying for you. All's going down to bring this lawsuit before a judge. And Paul's saying, wait a second, pause here. Of course, there's going to be conflict amongst believers, but bring it before another believer. Bring it before church leadership. Let a third party go through it and see where there's right and where there's wrong and spare the testimony of Christ. He says, I say this to your shame. Isn't there a wise person among you that can deal with this? Verse six, if a brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not... Rather, let yourself be cheated. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. That's another tough teaching, isn't it? God says for the testimony of Christ, if there's a disagreement with another believer, it's better to be wronged and cheated than to sue another believer. I gotta say it straight. I don't think there's any biblical permission to be suing another believer. That's what Paul's saying here. Saying it should be worked out amongst believers. It should be made right amongst believers. And it's better to be wronged and cheated than to have the testimony of Christ maimed in front of unbelievers. Now, this is a tough pill to swallow until you look at how Christ was wronged and cheated. And you look at what he went through on the cross for the testimony of the Father. Now, having said this, if you use this as your advantage over another believer, woe to you. Woe to you. I'm serious. Because you know the scripture and you know, well, they can't sue me, so I'm going to go ahead and wrong them and take advantage of them because they're another believer. They're convinced of the scriptures, so I can rob them. I, I can take advantage of them and they won't sue me. You're taking advantage of their Christian character. And that should be something that should put the fear of God in you. You know, this isn't written so that we can then take it and twist it and manipulate it against a, another believer. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul's asking questions as he is going through this section of scripture. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexual, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Righteousness, 
matters. Righteousness matters. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, the kingdom of God? Righteousness matters because it's an evidence of salvation. It's an evidence of the fact that Christ has come into our lives. And again, this is a difference between struggling with areas of sin and then willful rebellion. I think it comes down to the issue of, of the heart. If someone says, here's an area of sin, and I don't have any conviction over this area of sin any longer, and I'm a believer in Christ and God completely accepts this kind of lifestyle, you have to stop and examine, have you received Christ as your savior? But someone who's in a place of saying, you know what, I'm struggling with this area of sin and I desperately be want to be set free, that's evidence that the spirit of God is inside of you. So, if you're in a place of saying, you know what, this is part of my life that I've justified, it's habitual, that I fight for, I've got to have it, I don't have any intention of changing, there's no, no conviction that's there, then these verses fit that situation and say, have you truly given your heart and life to, to Jesus Christ? And Paul must have been dealing with these things inside of the church of Corinth where people were in these sinful lifestyles and saying, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to repent, and I don't feel convicted about it. And by the way, God's okay with it as well. And Paul's saying, wait a second, that's not the way that it, that it works. Verse 11 And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the good news. A whole bunch of you are in the same place. We were all in this same place. We all had our list of sin that we were involved in, but Christ came in our lives. He washed us. He sanctified us, which means for us to be set apart. He justified us, which means he declared us righteous by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Culture says you can't be delivered out of these things. That's a hopeless message. Culture says if, man, you're struggling with this, you're struggling with that, you can't be set free, and God says so were some of you. The work of Jesus Christ delivers us, brings forgiveness, washes us. There's hope, there's hope. There's hope for God's working and transformation in these areas of our lives. You guys having fun yet? This is like a spiritual boxing match. It's like, come to Wednesday night Bible study. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So Paul switches topics here a little bit. He goes from things that are clearly sinful that he lists in a few other verses to this area of freedoms or these areas of liberty where God says, you've got freedom to choose on these things. And he says, all these things are lawful to me. I, I have freedom in Christ to be able to, to go and do these things. But the greater question is not, is it lawful, but is it helpful? So this brings up a whole nother challenge. God's challenging us in areas of sin, but he's also challenging us in these areas of freedoms well, I can do this. I have the freedom to do this. But if I'm honest, it's not helpful. And I don't want to be brought under the bondage or the power of any. Verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. There's a mutual purpose there. How good would food be if it wasn't for the stomach? How good would the stomach be if it wasn't for food? And this was a common phrase amongst the Greeks, and they used it to justify sexual immorality. That, well, 
Sex is just a need. Just like I have a, a need to eat. I have an appetite to eat. I have a physical craving to eat. I have this physical craving for, for sex. And so Paul's addressing this mindset. It says, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So God will destroy the stomach. He'll, he'll destroy food. Those are simply temporary but there's something much more important that says the body's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God didn't create our body for sexual immorality. The creation of our physical body is amazing. It's amazing. It blows me away. When our four children were born and every time I see an infant, I'm like, God, you're such an amazing designer. When I do baby dedications and hold these little babies, and not one of them's the same. Their personalities are different. They look different. God is so good, and he's designed these bodies. And of all of God's creation, there's a wonder. He put some special work into the body, the physical body, and it declares the image of God. And God just comes out and says it. He says, I didn't create your body for this. I didn't create your body for sexual immorality. Yes, he created your body with sexuality to be used inside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the healthy, life-giving place, the honorable place for sexuality. And then there's this important truth in verse 13 that says, the Lord is for the body. Jesus Christ is our Lord, and he is for your body. So when you live the way God wants you to live, you are going to have the best experience in your physical body. We live in a culture that's health crazed. There's this huge movement towards health and there's nothing wrong with it except for this part. They leave out sexual purity. You know what's bad for your body? Sexual immorality. It's bad for your body. God didn't create your body for that. And you maybe heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. Keep sex organic. You want to eat organic? Great. Keep sex organic as well. And what do I mean by that? Between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. You go outside of that, and it's going to bring destruction spiritually, emotionally, and physically. The Lord is for the body. In verse 14, I love this. There's hope in the midst of this message. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. I'm sure some of you tonight are going, you know, I just feel so beat up. I, I am living in sexual immorality. I was feeling convicted before I came in. And I can't tell you how many times I've tried to do things differently, but I continue to go back to sexual sin. How am I ever going to live a different life? The power's not in you. The power is not in me. The power is in Christ. Amen? And God raised up Jesus from the dead. Christ was buried, lifeless body, spoke to the body of Christ, the, the dead body of Christ, and he was risen. And that power is given to us through Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection. And it will also raise us up by his power. When we get to that place where we're dead to our selfishness, we're dead to our own wants, our own will, and we surrender, and we say, God, I am committing to living according to your plan of sexual purity. His power comes into our lives. And daily, moment to moment, relying upon the power of the Spirit through the resurrection. God, I'm choosing to obey you. I need your power. I'm trusting 
that the bondage of sin has been broken. It's buried with Christ, and I'm ready to walk in the newness of life. Here's a core question. Do you believe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is stronger than your personal sexual sin? Your personal sexual immorality? Can you look at the face of the resurrected Jesus Christ and say, you know what? Your resurrection is not more powerful than my sexual sin. And you could put any area of struggle here. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ more powerful than your anger? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ more powerful than your covetousness? And deep down, we know the answer is yes, but practically we oftentimes struggle with that question, don't we? Look to Christ, look to your resurrected Savior, and trust in his power to be able to raise us up. It's not our own power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. You're joined to Christ. You're a member of Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. I'm part of the body of Christ. When Christ is joined to sexual sin, he's present in the midst of that perversion. When Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. And Christ becomes joined to that harlot. Whenever we're caught up in sexual sin, it's a very selfish perspective. We're only thinking about ourselves and we're not thinking about the reality, I'm joining Christ to this pornography. I'm joining Christ to, to this person. All we're thinking about is our selfish desires. In verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to harlot is one body with her for the, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So with sexuality, there's two things to remember for a believer that are very important. If you know Christ your Savior, you're joining Christ to that sexual sin, and also you are joining yourself to that person. The world says sex is just a physical act where two bodies come together. It's just a physical need similar to eating food, and God says no way. One of the foundational things to freedom is ex accepting God's design and truth for sexuality to realize that actually two are becoming one flesh. That's what Genesis teaches us. Leave your father and mother, cleave to one another. What does cleave mean? Be joined together as husband and wife and sexual unity. Then you are one flesh. You're made one flesh. Sex is the glue, practically, that holds together a marriage. It's healthy. And once you use that outside of marriage, you're being glued to a whole bunch of people that are not your spouse. So what happens to that man that go joins himself to the harlot to fulfill this quote-unquote physical need, the moment that then he leaves that harlot to never see her again, he's left part of his soul. He's been, by God's design, intended to be one flesh with that person, and then that's, that's ripped apart. You go from relationship to relationship to relationship. If you're single and you're saying, I just can't control this aspect of my life, the desire is so strong, so I'm gonna be in this bed with this person this month and I'll be in bed with that person and this relationship and that relationship. I haven't resolved sexual purity in my life. Then you're allowing a part of you to depart with each one of those sexual partners. And then... All of a sudden, there's a weight with this. It goes, man, I, I've really blown it in, in this area. 
And God is really good at restoring when we come back to him, amen? When we come to that place of saying, I'm gonna do it God's way. One of the enemy's biggest lies is you've already went too far. There's no point in doing it right now. Oh, that's a lie from the pit of hell. God can make you whiter than snow. He can restore, he can bless. He can bring life and purity where there was, there was death. In verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So God is really giving a profound teaching here that we're joining with someone with a one flesh experience, but we're also joined with the Lord, that our spirit is one with him. Flee sexual immorality. God tells us to resist the enemy and he'll flee from us, but he tells us to flee sexual immorality. Now that's pretty intense and interesting, isn't it? So you're experiencing a spiritual battle with Satan and God says, stand your ground. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee for you. But when it comes to sexual temptation, God says, don't stand your ground. Run for your life. Get your Nikes on and just run. Don't just do it, just run. Just get out of that situation. And Joseph, Joseph is the example of that, isn't he? Here he is a slave, serving in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife, trying to seduce him. She grabs his coat and he just runs. He runs. And running is the pathway to sexual purity. To already determine, okay, the temptation comes. I'm running from it. I'm running from it. You know those different areas of your life. I know those different areas of my life where there's temptation in the sexual arena and determine I'm going to flee. I'm going to run from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's a depth to sexual immorality where it's a destruction of our own body because it's inside of, of the body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is so much deeper than don't have sex outside of marriage. That's the very surface of this message. That's the the core of the physical aspect of purity. But what's deeper is you're joined to Christ. You belong to Christ. This is a worship issue. This is more than just, okay, I'm, I'm getting the exterior of sexual purity right in my life. This is the spirit of God lives inside of me. The Holy of Holies, such a valued place in the Old Testament, has now us as believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. Why? Why sexual purity? Because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because you're joined with Christ. Whom you have from God and you are not your own. And here's the spiritual truth is that Sexual purity matters because my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. For you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. That price is the blood of Jesus. That's how much God loved us. That's the price he paid to redeem us out, out of sin. If there's any question whether or not your life belongs to the Lord or not, look at this. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's response to and application of the finished work of Jesus Christ is, God, I want to glorify you 
with my body, with my spirit, which are God's. A lot of failure in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. A lot of undealt with sin as we read through these chapters. There's some encouragement as we'll get to 2 Corinthians. This man does repent and Paul writes and says, it's time for you to welcome this guy back into the, to the fellowship. I think the church of Corinth responded to the truth that was being shared with them. And will we respond as well? And as you're looking at areas of failure and sin in your life, and I look at that in my life, what's the hope? The hope is what Christ has done for us, his death and his resurrection. Where do we go from here? Is there a place to go from here? Yes. It's in verse 20. We go from here saying, God, I want to glorify you in my body. Church, what you say matters. What you listen to matters. What you look at matters. What you do with your hands matters. What you do with your feet, it matters. And saying, okay, God, I am going to view my Christian life this way. You have given me this body. It belongs to you. I'm not my own. And so I'm going to seek to glorify you with my body. And then when we fail, and we will, to quickly repent and say, God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? I want to endeavor to glorify you with my body. Well, gang, we made it. We did it. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, as we come to the communion table, may we experience your grace and your mercy, but also honesty and transparency with you. Lord, may we have the courage to allow you, Holy Spirit, to work in areas of failure of our life. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.